1: reality of summertime in Oregon, and that is wildfire season.
0: Yeah, Jim, you know, as most of us all likely know by this point, um, this wildfire season in 2021 has already been kind of a bad one. Uh, It's been um, starting a little bit earlier, and we've already seen a couple of really tough fires popping up. So we're recording this podcast mid-July And as we speak, the bootleg fire is burning more than 212,000 acres in Southern Oregon. There are a few other fires around as well. The Grandview fire, uh, the Jack fire, we've got just fires kind of all over the place here.
1: Yeah. And as you said, several fires uh, and the bootleg fire in Southern Oregon being the nation's largest kind of a, a, Mm. you know, dire state of affairs, if you will, not to be too much doom and gloom here at the start of the show, but this isn't exactly a fun and happy topic today. You know, we've got uh, obviously smoke uh, returning to pretty big geographic areas. We've got a lot of folks, uh, you know, forced to evacuate or told to evacuate because of the fires and obviously uh, scores and scores of firefighters Uh, fighting these blazes throughout the state.
0: Yeah, Jim, you know, it's really easy, I think, to get down about the wildfires. But I mean, look, this is just a reality of life in the Pacific Northwest during the summertime. As much as I would love for things to go back the way they were 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago when we didn't have to worry about this so much, that's just not where we're at. So we're in this position now where when people are trying to plan their summer trips when we're trying to figure out what we want to do in the months of july august september we have to think about wildfires and start you know keeping that in mind as we make these different travel plans and that can be kind of challenging
1: yeah very much so i mean you are not only trying to plan for you know the weather for areas that may uh you know the snow may melt uh later in the year um not only, of course, what you want to be doing, but also where it's safe to go. And uh, even if it's safe to go there, whether it's smoky, right? So there's a lot of considerations to keep in mind as you chart your travel or any kind of uh, camping or backpacking trips uh, throughout the duration of the remainder of the summer. And here with us today to talk about all of that and more, uh, we have colleague Cale Williams, who's a reporter on our breaking news team, uh, focuses on the environment and climate change, and, of course, the author of a new book. Um, and Kale is fresh off his first backpacking trip of the summer. Kale, how you holding up? I'm holding up all right. I'm happy to be
0: here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, thanks for coming on. So before we get uh, to wildfire preparedness
2: planning, all of that action
1: uh give us a, a quick lowdown uh, what'd you just get into and uh, how'd it go?
2: I was looking to get back into backpacking after more years than I care to talk about having not been on the trail with a heavy pack um, and so I hit up my Friend and colleague jamie hale and asked him where i should go (laughs) uh he made a recommendation of a, a place called burnt lake that's on the west slope of mount hood um and he said rather than take you know the the short little trail that goes there you should think about maybe taking the zigzag trail uh which you can start at at the trailhead right outside of rhododendron goes about 10 miles over uh two mountains uh to burnt lake and so i thought hey if he says so then i should probably go i sort of failed to take into consideration that Jamie is a much more avid outdoorsman than I am. Uh so it was it was challenging to say the least. Uh I hiked for several hours to maybe uh, underplay it a little bit, and was definitely very tired by the end. Um, But it was a good trip to go on because it kind of let me know where my limits are. Um, Ended up finding a nice little campsite by a creek, made myself some some good food for dinner, did some reading, set up a hammock, and had a nice night in the tent before I walked out on a different route that was much more downhill.
0: (laughs) Well, always good to to find your limits. We've talked about that before. Always good to know, you know, what's a little too far, what's a little too much, and uh, happy to hear that you found those. Um, uh, Sorry about making a recommendation that was maybe a little too much.
2: I think that's all right. It was probably a failure on my part to really consider how in shape I actually was after a year of being homebound.
0: Okay, <laughs> well, you said you've been um, looking to plan your next backpacking trip in the Central Cascades. Um, but you were saying that you, you feel a little apprehensive about putting that trip on the books, especially in light of the fires going on right now. So what are some of the considerations on your mind right now in that regard?
2: Well, I mean, that was one of the things that I realized when I was setting out to take that first trip is that these types of things take a lot of planning. You know, you need to plan your food, you need to plan your route. It's always good to talk to other folks who have been in those areas. Um, And so after that first one, you know, I started looking around on all trails, um, you know, and a couple other websites for something that was, you know, slightly more manageable in terms of length and elevation uh, than the last one I went on. And I settled on a hike down in the Central Cascades, uh, the canyon. Canyon Creek Trail uh, that goes right to the base of Three Finger Jack looked great. I uh, started looking up what kind of permits you need, um, and of course they put that permit system in place a couple years ago to limit the number of folks who are out on the trails. And so they release them in these rolling seven-day chunks. And so you know seven days ahead of time you need to go on and try to reserve yourself a permit. And so I was looking at doing that in early August. And, you know, the same day when I had kind of settled on that, I saw that the Brewer fire uh, had been Mm -hmm. reported right near Detroit, um, which was obviously the site of a massive wildfire, more than one actually, last year. Um, And so it just kind of got me thinking, you know, I need to get this permit. I need to do all this planning. And what if I do all that and then, you know, this fire gets out of control or another one pops up, or even if both of them are under control, what if the whole area is under a heavy blanket of smoke? I'm not really in the market to be doing a long hike in an N95 mask, um, you know? And part of the reason that we do these things that we go outdoors is to to see these beautiful places. And if you can't see more than a quarter, half a mile, a mile, you know, what kind of impact is that going to have on my experience? Yeah,
1: absolutely so. Uh and Kale is referencing, of course, the the new permit system in Central Oregon uh, that's been in the works for a number of years uh and went into effect uh this spring, I believe. So Jamie, you have also done a lot of reporting on this subject just recently of kind of what folks should know while they're planning their trips, what they should keep in mind as they head out, general wildfire preparedness tips and and tricks, for lack of a better way of putting it. So uh, walk us through what have you learned as you've been calling up experts and forest managers about uh, how to be a conscientious hiker during wildfire season?
0: Yeah, well, just like Kale said, uh, it takes just even more planning than you have already been doing for these trips. Um, I mean, Cale, I think you hit it at the head here. It takes so much to plan a backpacking trip, you know, um, and you know, or any kind of trip into the the wilderness, into nature. And fire season is just another one of those things you have to think about. All, all three of us as reporters who cover you know wildfires to some degree are used to looking at some of these resources um online. And that's what a lot of people um who work with um you know, a lot of fire officials, park officials said. You know, you get, acquaint yourself with these online resources, know where to go to find out where fires are burning, what's closed, you know, where you might need to um, have to turn around on a forest road, those kinds of things. So, I mean, I know the three of us are probably used to looking at sites like, you know, NC um, or Forest Service websites. Um, but for a lot of folks, I know that, that those resources either are just a little bit too foreign or people just don't even really know um, how to go about navigating them, even if they know they exist.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Cale, you know, probably better than anyone, right? Uh, You're one of our, our lead wildfire reporters. When you're kind of combing the internet to search for information about where fires are burning, where people need to evacuate, forest closures, stuff like that. What are you actively checking? And what would you recommend folks uh, take a look at before they kind of get too far into their planning process?
2: Well, there's a couple different resources. But as you said, it it can be a little confusing. Um, Even for those of us who are intimately familiar with how to go about getting this information, it can be a challenge sometimes. Um, NCWeb, which is, you know, not commonly known by i think most folks is generally the best place to go for the most up-to-date information on fires of any marginal size Uh, they're not going to have the smallest fires on there necessarily and they're not going to update those things you know every hour Uh, but they're, they're usually good for at least a couple updates a day and if you just type into google the name of the fire and in it'll usually take you right to the, the page that will give you, you know, the acreage, when it started, how many structures are threatened, how many firefighters are working on it, and what the outlook is uh, for the future, at least for you know the several days ahead of when you're looking. But it can be challenging to get all of the information you need just from one source. And there's often, you know, regional fire departments um, and you know the Willamette National Forest will sometimes be the best source of information, or other, you know, the Oregon Department of Forestry. And so it's really kind of a scattershot patchwork of sources for information
1: and worth noting as well that we are out there, you know, not to plug our own work too much, but th- this is, you know, after all an Oregonian Oregon live podcast, you know, you and our uh, breaking news team primarily are out there trying to make sense of all of that information and make it accessible. So for folks looking uh, to kind of one-stop shop as best they can, um, OregonLive.com slash wildfires is going to be a place to do that. And then InsuWeb, which is I-N-C-I-W-E-B, um, for those who are are Googling, um, that is a way to uh get specific information about one specific area. Right now, for example, Southern Oregon is not in good shape. That's maybe one example of a, a place, uh at least part of Southern Oregon, where you're Probably not going to want a vacation right now, but Kale, as you're planning a trip, right? Let's say you just want to go backpacking in general. How are you whittling down where seems like a good idea right now? What's kind of that first initial part of the planning process like?
2: I mean, for me, it it was about finding a trail that suited my mileage and time. Uh, You know, I knew that I wanted to do another quick overnight. I knew that I didn't want to drive longer than, you know, a few hours to do so. Uh, And, you know, I was hoping to find a loop to do because, you know, that way you get new scenery the whole time. But I was fine with an out and back. You know, I just wanted there to be something nice to look at where I camped or at least within, you know, a a quick hike of where Mm -hmm. I was planning to set up my tent. Mm -hmm. Um, After that, you know, I, I did think about, wildfires and you know you have to look is there a big fire in the area well first of all is you know the area where you want to go going to be open how close is that fire beyond that if it is open is it going to be impacted by smoke um you know i've long ago given up the idea of having a campfire wherever it is that i set up my tent um because that is just doesn't feel responsible. And in most places isn't even allowed at this point. Um, but you want to make sure that where you're going, you know, you're going to have a decent experience. And if it's going to be too smoky for that, then, you know, you can kind of cross that one off the list.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much so. And Jamie, you know, as folks head out, right, uh, say they've picked, picked their place, uh, they know what they want to do, whether that's a Uh, stay in a hotel and some day hiking or a trip into the back country for an overnight or two. What should folks be doing to be conscious and and good stewards uh, of the environment throughout wildfire season here?
0: I mean, I think it's pretty simple. It's, you know, um, consider not making fires um, generally. And if you do really, really, really make sure that you're putting out your campfire completely um, you know, I, I was talking to one of the spokeswomen for the Forest Service and the BLM um, for the fires, and she said, you know, one of the things that, that she's guilty of sometimes, that I think we're all guilty of, you make a campfire, you put it out, maybe you take a little bit of your water bottle left and you sprinkle it on and say, you listen to the the embers sizzle and you go, oh, good, it's out. That's pretty good. I don't see any embers left. And you spread them around a little bit and call that good. And that might be okay if you're camping in wetter areas in the springtime or the winter. Um, But when it's really, really dry like this, you want to make sure there's absolutely no embers left. Um, So what they recommend is to just pour a bunch of water. Um, I would carry just a, a, you know, a jug of water in your car specifically for putting out campfires. You know, or if you're, you know, have some water nearby, fill one of those things up. Douse the fire completely keep a shovel with you, a small shovel um, in your car specifically, again, for this to stir those ashes and make sure that everything is out completely. You know, I know that that carrying those extra things just to put out a fire might seem like a lot for people and experienced campers may kind of roll their eyes and say, Oh, I know how to put out a campfire. I've been doing this forever, but it's never too late to just refresh your memory of, of how to, best put out a campfire because one little ember like that, you know, it can start the fire going back up, it can spread through some dry tender, and you can end up with a disaster. Obviously, you know, that's not like the only cause of of fires, but that's something you want to take into consideration. Um, And usually when you're camping out somewhere at a campground, they will have posted pretty clear fire restrictions that may mean, you know, you're allowed to have campfires in camp rings only and those, those fire rings. Um, or it might mean that you're not allowed to have any kind of open flame whatsoever. And that might include your, you know, your cooking stove. So you need to really consider too, um, do I have options to feed myself if I can't cook food with an open flame? Um, do I have options to keep myself warm and entertained if I don't have a fire? Uh, you know, this time of year, summertime, it, the sun sets so late anyway, you don't necessarily need a fire um, for very long anyway. So enjoy that sunset. Uh, maybe play a game of cards by Lantern and don't worry about making a fire. Uh, I know it's romantic. People like it. But I would just say consider the idea that you don't necessarily need a campfire for your summer camp out.
1: To tack onto that, I remember Jamie, as I'm, I'm sure you do, and Kale as well, when we were reporting ahead of the eclipse. We uh, very much spent a lot of time, kind of unpacking, you know, how to uh, be good stewards of the environment at a time where it's going to be very, very busy. And one of the tips that I remember from that was, uh, you know, pulling off the side of the road. Say you're not at a established parking area and you're kind of parking on the, the side of the road, maybe in some grass or whatever, trying to be conscious of, hey, maybe that's not the best place to park because uh, let's say your vehicle is hot and uh, you're parking in some dry brush and all it takes is a little bit of, uh, you know, some some tall blades of grass touching on the underside of your car, and uh, all of a sudden you have a brush fire to contend with, right? So uh, doing all of the little things to make sure you are not the root of a problem, basically.
0: Exactly. And I think dragging chains is another thing that starts fires as well. You know, people making fires outside their homes to burn, um, brush, that sort of thing. Um, Really just anytime you have a flame this time of year, you want to be conscious of that.
1: Very much so. Well, we are going to talk some more about wildfire season in Oregon here right after a short break. All right, folks, we are back with our colleague Kale Williams talking about wildfire season and what Outdoor enthusiasts need to know as they plan trips and head into the outdoors. But, Kale, let's zoom out a bit here, right? Last summer's wildfire season was a bad one, and this summer has been bad so far as well. Oregon's climate is changing, as we know, and uh, you are an expert in this area here, Uh, have literally written a book on the subject. What do you make of kind of the current state of affairs as far as Oregon wildfires go?
2: Yeah, I think it's important to remember that not all wildfires are disasters. Sure. Fire is a natural part of the environment, Um, you know, and, and it struck me when you were, you know, Doing your intro that, you know, I think Jamie said that we wish we could go back to the way things were 40 or 50 years ago. But part of the reason why we are where we are now is because we've been suppressing fires for so long. Mm. Um, For the last hundred years or so, they've had something called the 24-hour rule where they would try to suppress a fire so that, you know, it was more or less out within 24 hours. And that was started in... The early 1900s, after some truly epic firestorms that wiped out entire towns across the West uh, here in Oregon, there was one in Utah that was known as the Big Burn, but we've been suppressing fires so aggressively for so long that a lot of places that would have burned naturally and wouldn't have the necessary fuel to to blow up into these conflagrations are now just teeming with with wood uh, and brush and other things that fires need to burn. So you've got that aspect. And then you've also got climate change. And what climate change does obviously is it increases average temperatures. And what that does is it, it dries out those fuels. So you've got more fuel and the fuel that is there is drier, it's ready to go up much easier than it would have under different scenarios. And that's partly because of a lack of precipitation, but that's also because precipitation is coming in different forms. You know, where it used to snow, it now rains. And so you end up with much smaller snowpacks. Snowpacks act as sort of these frozen reservoirs that can release water throughout the summer um, for predictable, you know, river flows and stream flows and flows and creeks uh, but that is not coming along the same timing as it used to and so you're ending up with much drier landscapes all across the region and so it also struck me that you know we talked a lot about how humans can can go about preventing fires and that's really important because you know, close to 90% of wildfires are caused by humans. The other 10% are generally caused by by lightning. But it's the human factor that comes into play with those natural systems that, that can really make for these fires to become disasters. Like I said, not, not every wildfire is a disaster. They happen naturally. They happened before humans were here. They happened long before Westerners were here, and, and many Native American tribes used fires. They used what we would call prescribed burns now to make sure that these fires didn't grow into disasters. But it's when they intersect with the human world, when they come into contact with communities, when houses burn, when people lose property, or loved ones in terrible situations that that's when it becomes a disaster and so you know lots of very smart scientists have been looking at exactly what climate change is going to mean moving forward Um, the oregon climate change research institute which is run out of oregon state university released their climate assessment earlier this year and one of the studies they cited found that with an increase of two degrees Celsius, the area in Oregon expected to burn will go up 200 uh, percent when you compare the 2010 to 2039 period to the 1961 to 2004. So that's a big increase. You know, another study they cited found that under a high emission scenario, which is basically if we continue to emit the same amount of greenhouse gases that we are currently, that you know we're going to see a 200 to 400 percent increase from 2041 to 2070 and that may feel like a long way off but it's not for those of us who are you know around 40 that's 20 years from now um for our kids that's going to be the prime of their lives so you know it's important to know that these types of fires are likely to increase
0: I feel like this sense of um, sadness (laughs) and a sense of dread, which I think is what a lot of us are feeling right now, staring into that future. I mean, is there um, any kind of upshot to this um, that, you know, I guess I'm asking if you can make me feel a little bit more (laughs) optimistic about it, if that's possible?
2: Well, I can try. And I will tell you, I ran up against the same problem when I was writing the book. There is not a lot of necessarily hopeful news in climate change but you know the oregon legislature just passed a a bill that's one of the most aggressive in the country to curb emissions you sort of have to change the way you think about climate change the way that carbon dioxide works in the atmosphere it lasts a long time it takes You know, many, many, many years to degrade. And so, what we have in the atmosphere now is going to be there for our lifetimes. So, we are not necessarily going to reverse the changes that are already underway. But what we can do is we can make sure that these changes do not affect future generations in the same way that they are for us. We can keep it from getting worse, essentially, is what we can do. Um, And while that may not sound hopeful, that's probably about as hopeful as you're going to get when it comes to a climate discussion.
1: Kale, before we let you go here, we've referenced this book uh, a number of times, but haven't jumped into it. It's obviously, uh, you know, climate change is a central focus, but through the lens of uh, a a local matter uh, that a a lot of listeners probably uh, have, have a good amount of interest in here.
2: Yeah, so uh, earlier this year, uh, a book based on a series that I did for The Oregonian that came out in 2017 was released. The book is called The Loneliest Polar Bear. Uh, It follows the life of Nora, a polar bear who currently lives at the Oregon Zoo in Portland's West Hills. And this is actually her second stop here. Uh, She was born in Ohio in 2015. It's been a while. Uh, (laughs) She was born in Ohio in 2015, uh, abandoned by her mother and raised by zookeepers. And for the book, I looked at uh, sort of the way her life has been shaped by her interaction with humans, how her wild counterparts are faring up in Alaska, and how their fate is closely tied to that of the folks who live up there, uh, the native uh, Nupiak hunters, many of whom I talked to for the book, and how... Ultimately, the fate of both polar bears and Inupiaq hunters is really going to be the fate of, our, of all of us as climate change continues to change the way we live.
0: It is an excellent book, The Loneliest Polar Bear. I recommend it to um, everyone, but especially those of us here in the Portland area who may have uh, seen Nora, um, befriended Nora, um, or plan to do so. Um, Kale, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. It's been a pleasure.
2: I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Yeah, Jim, I mean, like I said at the top, it's really easy to, I think, get um, down about the state of things, obviously, because they're not great, uh, you know, but what I keep thinking for myself when I keep talking to people about is like, you know, human beings we're we're pretty adaptable um, and it's not fun to have to adapt to these these changes and change itself is always uncomfortable. Um, that's kind of, though, the way I'm looking at it, it's like, how can I adapt um, as a person, um, as a traveler in Oregon to these changing circumstances? And what do I need to do to, um, enjoy things as best as I possibly can and to keep things as safe as I possibly can out there in nature? Um, and there are some of those small things that we can do, like we talked about, but, um, I think we just all need to think about that adaptability a little bit more.
1: Absolutely so, Jamie. And, you know, trying our best, as we've said so many times here on the show, to be good stewards of the environment, uh, to obey closures, uh, to obey uh, burn bans and the like, and, uh, you know, stay alert. And uh, again, as we've referenced so many times, uh, if you really want to go on a backpacking trip to a specific spot, and that spot is smoky or, you know, unfortunately, uh, in a wildfire area, having another plan, another place you can go, uh, trying to make the most of your summer, um, of course, while not uh, contributing to a problem or putting yourself in an unsafe situation. So, folks, until next time here on the show, you can watch our videos on the Oregonians YouTube channel, follow us on Instagram at Peak Northwest, and view all of our travel and outdoors coverage on OregonLive.com slash travel. Please leave us a rating or review if you enjoy the show. And if you want to support this podcast and our local journalism, please consider a subscription to Oregon Live. You can find details, of course, at OregonLive.com slash pod support. This episode of the show was
0: produced by me, Jim Ryan, alongside Jamie Hale and Andrew Thien. Stay safe and happy travels, everyone. Until next time, we leave you with this 10 Seconds
2: of Zen.